When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Manchester's indie rock and roll station, Excess Manchester. The Excess Manchester Long Player, an iconic album in full with Jim Salverson. Excess Manchester. You're right, this is the. What's that? You're right, you're right, this is the Excess Long Player. I'm Jim, and this is another podcast delving into the backstory behind a classic album. Today, it is the debut album. From Everything Everything, the brilliant, challenging, exciting and hugely original debut, Man Alive. Released in 2010, it's currently getting a bit of a reissue to mark its 10th anniversary in 2023. More on that in a moment. But the second disc from the re-release double Gatefold album contains demos and rarities and also a signed print from the band as well. It was an absolute joy rediscovering this album and talking through it with Jonathan Higgs and Jeremy Pritchard from the band, who picked out some of their favourite moments and their thinking behind its creation. As always, links to the full album in the podcast description if you want to go and rediscover it, and I recommend you do. But let's get stuck in. Everything, everything, Man Alive is the focus of this Excess Long Player. How you doing, boys? Good. Really good to see you. 10th anniversary re-release at the moment of Man Alive, which the more observant people will spot that I just said it was released in 2010 mm-hmm. and it's 2023. Yeah, that's because of COVID, really. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and disorganisation. Yeah. What was it like still, even though you're slightly out in terms of the number of years the album's been on the planet, taking that pause, that look back through 10 years of space between now and the release of the debut album what was it like peering back and rediscovering this album again in some ways it feels like yesterday as they always say and in a lot of ways it also feels like a really long time ago and like Mm. different people in a different band i think what's more striking is everything that we've done since really what we've managed to pack into the the intervening time makes it feel like oh it is actually a while ago but yeah like going over the old recordings and stuff because we've expanded it a bit and there's a there's another disc for people who want to go deeper. That was quite illuminating because that's stuff we haven't really listened to for decades, if ever. <laughs> <laughs> does it feel quite fresh still, looking back and kind of hearing that stuff again when you listen to it? Does it kind of transport you instantly back to those early days of the band and being in the studio? Yeah, I think so. I think there's the decisions we made then were pretty weird in a lot of places. And... Uh, <laughs> They still sound quite weird. <laughs> yeah. Um, at the time, I can remember kind of going, "Why? Why not?" Mm. Whereas now we kind of go, "Why?" <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. There was, a, there was maybe more abandon. Yeah, and I still don't know who made that record. You mm. know, it wasn't me. It wasn't us. It was those guys back then, and they had lots of ambition with what they were doing. Mm. And in that particular record, did that lack of regard for the rules, if you want to call it that, that kind of like, let's just do this because we can do it. Does that benefit the record, do you feel? Oh, definitely, yeah. I think we took loads of risks and it set us up to make them again, you know. Yeah. It wouldn't surprise people if we wanted to do various things coming off the back of Man Alive. We didn't shut ourselves into any particular corner, apart from these guys are a little bit weird. I suppose <laughs> yeah. that's the corner we've, we're going to operate in anyway. 
Yeah, we always used to say that it kind of gave us, certainly when we started making and releasing subsequent albums, we used to say that Man Alive had given us like 12 different directions to go in right. and that we didn't really choose any of them. <laughs> so yeah, it, we, kind of set, we set out our <laughs> stall in a certain way, as John says, as a, as a sort of unusual and, and ambitious proposition. But also, you can only make your first album once and after that you kind of lose a certain innocence. You become mm. inevitably more cynical of the whole process, that whole two, three year period that you will be living with that record and the, the different ways in which your relationships with the songs change. Yeah, yeah. You know, the writing stage, the demo stage, the recording stage, the touring stage, the distance from them three, four, five, thirteen years in. Mm. You know, they... I do like... I haven't heard the record that recently, but I had to listen to the test pressings when they came through a few weeks ago, and that was the first time I'd listened to it in a few years. And I do like how kind of jagged it sounds. It's not very streamlined. Mm. And I think that's quite... That does keep it quite fresh and quite youthful sounding. I think you said before as a band that you find it really hard to be satisfied with a song through the creative process. You're like, almost like you're never quite happy with it, but you get to a point where finally you've just got to go, that's enough. Does that make it more difficult to go back and listen to stuff that maybe happened 10 years ago when you developed as artists and musicians? I think that's like, there's a cut-off period. Yeah. And I, I'm pretty aware that if we were to go back and try and change things magically or in the studio. Well, you had the opportunity with the remix. Yeah, I, suppose, it, it would, I mean, you can maybe make it, you can maybe remaster it, mm. you know, yeah. but I wouldn't want to mess with it. No, I, you wouldn't, can't go I wouldn't want history. to, you know, I wouldn't even want a different mix of it. I right. want it to be maybe slightly mastered or something because it was actually made at the height of the loudness wars, wasn't it? We were talking about the shape of the audio files the other day because yeah. we had to go through them. And they're just what we call a Cumberland sausage, where there's just very little dynamic going on. <laughs> Everything is blasting out. Um, Which we wanted at the time. That was very much the sound. Yeah. And you wouldn't really tell. It's not like it's detrimental, but mm. that would be the type of thing maybe we would look at again if we were doing this in the 50-year mark or something. <laughs> but, I don't know. but again, you know, probably you, make, you make your bed yeah. and you stick by it. Which is yeah. not the phrase, but you know what I mean. <laughs> but if that was kind of the if that was the sound of the time as well. Yeah. It's yeah. important that a record fits into kind of like yeah. Why the would we put this out now? With, with like it doesn't make any sense. We will go back and and change things. Yeah, there are certain examples, aren't there, of people re-recording mm. early material with the sort of knowledge they've accrued subsequently, and that it's always ghastly. No one ever likes it as no. much as the original. No, no, they don't. It's like no. it's like um, you know remaking films and rebooting. Mm characters and all that stuff it's never the same and it's never as good yeah going back to the early days of making the album and those early days in the studio now i understand that quite a lot of this record kind of existed in some form before you went into the studio and some of the tracks are kind of remixes of demos and some of them existed in demos form did that make the whole process of going in and the the speed as well of recording did that benefit that did in as much as when we sort of went to do the album session proper, we probably had a few things that were at least ninety percent in the can already, like mm. Mike Easy's boyfriend. We'd done, and we didn't really want to do anything with that except maybe mix it. And NASA, NASA is on your side. We'd done in the same session with the same producer, David Costin, who ended up making the album. So mm. we kind of started the album session with him without realizing, really, because right. we wanted to make a single with him, and that was a good relationship, and we carried on. And he definitely had vision for the band and for the album. That was new to us, so we we wanted to make the record with him, and it gave us a certain confidence, I guess, that we had those songs already there, and we just wanted to embellish songs we'd been touring for a couple of years in some cases, and in a few cases were quite new, brand yeah. new. 
Alex only joined the band about three or four months before we went in to record this album. Mm-hmm. So we wrote things like Final Form and Leave the Engine Room and Schooling with him. But the rest of it was sort of already lying around in bits. And where were those demos put together? Because I guess this was kind of... I mean, we're in a period now where you can record something in a basement in your house mm-hmm. and kind of get a very good quality product. I guess this is kind of the beginning of that journey from yeah. a technology point of view. So were these bedroom demos, were they done in? Some of them were, okay. yeah. Yep. And a lot of the sounds we kept as well. A lot of the really nasty soft synths came from... A- yeah, like the harpsichord in Two for Nero, that just yeah. very false sounding harpsichord that we, I guess, at the back of our minds, we assumed we would swap out for a nice real one or something else. And then it got to the big studio and the producer, David, said, um, no, that's absolutely we're not changing that. Yeah. That's what's great about this. And there's quite a few examples like that where we've just done slightly amateurish things or just placeholder sounds, you know, mm. or sounds you would you just wouldn't use. Yeah. And those ended up on the record because that's how they were created and our producer liked it. One of the things that I picked up on listening back to this record, and I'm shamefaced that I didn't hear this in any way previously, which probably says more about me than it says about the record, is the very obvious surface Radiohead influence that kind of runs through the whole thing. Weirdly, I think it kind of sounds like the stuff that Radiohead went on to make rather than the stuff that maybe Radiohead had made at the time, which is quite right. strange, like you were predicting That's their quite future. A compliment. <laughs> yeah. But, they copied us. You know. <laughs> yeah. What else was kind of like on the inspiration? What were you guys listening to that was going into this record in the early stages of this album's genesis and informative years of the band as well? It was so broad. Mm-hmm. always was and especially at that time and I think maybe this is the record that best reflects the kind of full breadth of our influences because we were all like 23, 24 and determined to show all the records we owned <laughs> in our own album and everything we listened to but also equally not make it too much of a sort of overwhelming smorgasbord try and filter it through our own sensibility and we'd all kind of come from four different corners but had the sort of same common experience in the middle which was you know the 90s rock stuff you've mentioned yeah. Radiohead and Nirvana and and a lot of hip hop from that period as well. But Mike was like a jazz guy. He was like a champion jazz drummer. He was like right. the best teenage drummer in the country or something. Yeah. In the two thousands. <laughs> and then he and he'd been to study jazz drums in America for a year. And Alex was kind of wonder kinder guitar player who we knew from another band and then joined our band and he introduced us to a lot of like kraut rock and prog that he was really into at that mm-hmm. point which he never talks about now because he moves so fast. Right. And, and me and John have been like kind of flirting with math rock, but also like American R&B, like Destiny's Child. And we thought all of that stuff was great and we wanted to be able to present it side by side. And we did, I think, quite successfully on this album. It sounds like you almost came at it from a... I guess not all musicians work in this way. You almost came at it from an academic point of view in terms of kind of like a, a love of music in its entirety rather than necessarily taking inspiration from one particular album yeah or one particular i think it just it it naturally happens when a band a band you know full stop playing guitars and drums trying to emulate something which isn't doesn't come from a band like Mm. you know r kelly or something well maybe that does but something that just isn't indie rock and you put it through that lens it comes out in a way you haven't predicted right people aren't always sure how you got there when really we're some of it's just, this is what Destiny's Child would sound like if you, if a band played it, you know, and yeah. it was being sung by four lads that aren't very good at singing, you know, <laughs> shouting it One of our and listening st- to the future heads with the other ear, you yeah. know, and it's not, it's not that, um, it's not that much of a 
crazy mixture when you when you put it through that lens, I think. Was there ever an intention to make something that couldn't be pigeonholed? That someone always, couldn't go... Always, okay. yeah. You that was sort of the only, the only raison d'etre, really. And, you know, you're really bloody-minded when you're that age and you're as defined by the things you don't like as much as by the things you do like. We didn't that, like a lot of things. We didn't like a lot of things. <laughs> and we'd come off the kind of mid-2000s, mid to late 2000s period where guitar music had got quite kind of stale and formulaic. It had been really exciting at the beginning of that mm. decade and it was starting to get exciting at the end of it again. And we were quite encouraged by stuff like klaxons and I guess folds as well, like hearing them on the radio and thinking there's some more, there are some more high ideals here mm. in terms of the music, but also the lyrics as well. Got a bit smarter and people were doing the work for us before that a little bit. But yeah, <laughs> I remember um, uh, one of our first ever gigs at Night and Day. We were supporting a band from Canada called Stars, I think. And they, their singer was really nice and we went out with them after the show to Matt and Fred's. And he was like, you guys are like Fugazi, but bone thugs and harmony. And we were so, so pleased with that <laughs> no combination. <laughs> yeah, no it's like the two, you'd never put those two groups in the same yeah. sentence, but we were really pleased that we'd inspired that idea. <laughs> was part of that down to, part of that wanted to do something different down to the expectation that as a, let's say, rock band coming from Manchester, you should be some kind of derivative of Oasis, or, or in your case, that was still hanging around, yeah. yeah. And in your idea. case, like you got synth, so it's like, all right, you're you're, you're new order, new order. In that yeah. Case, it, like- it was it it was definitely in our minds, but also we're not really from Manchester. No. Like I'm from Newcastle Way, and so's our drummer Mike. Jez is from Kent. So when we got there, we were at uni, and yeah, we felt like we're going to start a band here in Manchester, but we never felt the pressure of the city really we certainly had to respond to more questions about where we were yeah, based than, than, always been than you might a... do if you were based in Bournemouth right. but yeah. that's, you know, that's the result of being part of a music city you know, it's one of the great music cities of the world and we're very happy and privileged to be part of that lineage but we also didn't really feel any responsibility to it no we, not at all really okay. we enjoyed it the same as everyone else mm. but we, it wasn't like we had a fan base that expected it before we began or anything like that no I think one of the most defining features of this record is your vocals, Jonathan. Mm-hmm. Um, not just for that falsetto style, but also for the speed of the delivery of the lyrics in many of the songs. Do you remember when that became your your style of singing? Was it just that that felt like how these songs needed to be delivered? Well, or it's, what, what, it's what Craig David was doing. Right. It's what Beyonce was doing in Destiny's Child. You know, it was what R. Kelly was doing. It's what these people were doing. It's what the charlatans, for example, were not doing. Right. Uh, it's what uh, the libertines were not doing. And it was far more interesting to me. And I thought, there's no reason why I can't do this in an indie band. Yeah, I've always wanted to be able to perform hip-hop, but it's always felt like I'm in a bit of an inauthentic place to do it. I mean, I think a lot of that's changed now. But there's still a step, there's one step between rapping and singing and I like to sort of hover around there and yeah singing fast is one of those things and when you do it in a falsetto it does have a particular sound <laughs> <laughs> um, but I just the, the more I did it the more I found I was quite good at it and mm. the better I got at it so it was just very easy to slip into it wasn't really a deliberate thing I'm going to do this I'm going to be the guy that goes fast and high it just I was trying to be somebody that did that in a different genre that must present some challenges when you're taking in a studio setting I can kind of understand that you get the option to do it but that must be challenging when you take it into a live 
setting to be able to uh, you'd be surprised that that, that that particular thing is not difficult okay for me anyway it's the it's just general stamina of, of like singing big long full power stuff that's the stuff that gets tricky but really that's just like any muscle you know but the, the you know the type stuff is, has always been easy and i can do that bit in no reptiles which people you know look at me like oh my god how's he doing that i don't even think about that and i never do and if i have ever messed it up it's because i probably started to think about it it's all muscle memory and you operate on a different plane when you're right. performing I want to talk about the kind of lyrical elements of the album because I think in this album and probably beyond this in future albums as well, there's this theme of technology and the dark side of technology coming through. It's kind of like a, a musical version of Black Mirror or something mm, like that, I guess, to Black a certain Mirror. extent. Was that a concerns you had at the time about where technology was heading in the future? Was it kind of that was, was dominating your thoughts? I mean, I have a pretty dominated head a lot of the time <laughs> so yeah that was definitely something in there i'm trying to think what i don't think we set out or i certainly i didn't set out for man alive to have a one big theme it was very much scattershot this is the experience of a young a young man but yeah there was a lot of sort of what's become a sort of trope of mine which is a kind of warning song mm. um, there's always a few of those on every record or that's the way a lot of the lyrics end up being is kind of like satirically presented sort of predictions. It is very like Black Mirror, actually. When that show came along, they used one of our songs for oh, the really? trailer, yeah, and I thought, well, someone no- someone up there has noticed <laughs> yeah. that we've been doing we're this really for a while. For yeah. um, but, you know, everyone, a lot of people do this, do that kind of thing. That's always been my approach, is not to out and out say what I think, but to, to paint little pictures of how things are, how things were, how things may be, mm. and you sort of infer from that what i think about mm. things but i don't think it's i don't i don't like being told someone's exact opinion in art i, I like to find it out for myself or suspect things or, or actually sometimes i like to be surprised when they're not what i thought they were as mm. well you mentioned you said a line there, i forget exactly what you said but you said you, you considered it the story of one man or something something mm. along those lines when i've listened to this record previously i've always thought it was maybe more observational than personal but from your point of view, are these kind of personal? Sorts? Man alive is is hugely personal, right? To a fault in, in places, yeah. but yeah, to a fault. I mean, something like my keys isn't, but something like but something like weights or tin or Nero. Yeah, those are perhaps the most <laughs> personal songs I've ever written. But my style was much more it was much more to, about hiding. Then I could write a song now where I w- I might say I think this and I do this and I love you. The end. And everyone would go, oh, what an honest song, but it wouldn't be anywhere near as honest as something like Weights or Tin. Is it better or worse? Is it kind of more frustrating that people maybe don't pick up on... No, I mean, I'm, I'm singing about a fox going through the bins. <laughs> it's, there's no way you could know. There's no way you could know what I'm on. Right. No, no one knows why Tin is called Tin, apart from maybe the guys in the band, and only Jez has got a good memory. <laughs> I, do, I do know why. <laughs> but yeah, there's a lot of code on that album, yeah. right? And that's part of its attraction, even to those of us in the band who didn't write the words is sort of unpicking that stuff and sort of understanding it slowly over time. And also to the its audience and the fans who still get a lot of enjoyment out of decoding the songs. I think after that album, we wanted to be able to sort of remove the mask a bit more and let more people in. But it it's still a sensibility that we hold yeah. close, I think, to not be too explicit and too didn't. didactic because it's boring. Mm-hmm. There's, it's, it's not as poetic. I want to 
pick a couple of highlights from the album. I want you to pick one each, if that's possible. Can be a song you love, or a moment, or a memory that one of the songs brings back. Whatever you like, I'll give you a moment to think about that because there's a couple mm. songs that I just want to talk about quickly. One is you've mentioned it a couple of times. Mikey's your boyfriend, which I've always thought was an interesting song because lyrically. Half of it's quite poppy and it's the stuff you hinted at. It's like the Beyonce, it's the Craig David, mm-hmm. it's the R. Kelly. And then there's this, as with a lot of your music, this darker kind of apocalyptic thread running yeah. through it as well. It's almost like there was two songs mashed together. And I was interested in how that started, what the origins of that were. Was it always the intention to have this kind of juxtaposition in there? Well, I can tell you the, the old intro... Mm-hmm was just a clap and then us all going ah! <laughs> not any particular note just like just shouting yelling. literally like that and then the song would start after what you wanted was the sound of a, a mouse a PC mouse clicking was it? into oh, the song and we, and so we actually good. performed it live a bit like that we did it at the Deaf Institute like that in a that, support slot, supporting the, the Wan McLean at the Deaf in 2008 which is the first time we played it Actually, and it we, didn't work very well. And <laughs> David Costin was like, yeah, I think you just put a chorus at the front, lads. And it was the first time we'd done anything so that was poppy. The, that was the most, like, the biggest concession we'd ever made musically was to put a chorus at the start of it. And we're like, oh, I don't know about these guys. I don't know about this. And it's an instrumental chorus anyway. It's not like we're giving the game away. No. We were so resistant to that idea. But because it did actually work and made us feel great, David got the gig after that. Yeah. But that song is actually two songs mashed together. Most of the songs on that album are. Right. N- not many of them are, were conceived as one whole piece of music. Something like Leave the Engine Room was. Schooling definitely wasn't. You can hear the join. Mm-hmm. They were recorded as one piece of music. They were rehearsed and up as, you know, we've got this bit in John's laptop and we've got this bit that we've been jamming. We'll just match the keys. We did a lot of that on that album. Mm-hmm. Well, and we care. still did. We didn't care. And I don't think it matters if it works, yeah. you know. Um, something like Photoshop was written all in one, Tim's written all in one. You NASA. Can usually, you can NASA tell. is clearly a song song. Yeah, something but, like QWERTY probably wasn't. No, it definitely wasn't. Uh, Nero has a, that's, the song changes, here's the end Yeah, of it. exactly. Yeah. Um, we did a lot of that, we still use this phrase, song of two halves, and we know that we can, be, we can maybe lean on that a bit too much, but we established that as a thing we did, and a thing we did well quite a lot on that album. The other track I wanted to mention briefly was Schooling. Less about the track, more about what it almost gave the album, because I understand like, Taj Mahal was almost mm. the title of the album, which well, came it was, from school. It was, it was really, suggested. really hubristic idea, but it was the front runner for a while. Why? Because yeah. I know you were looking for lines from songs that weren't titles of songs to become the album. I'm interested in what else was on that list. If you had Man Alive, oh, I Taj found Mahal. the list the other day and I can't remember any of it now. There were uh, so many. God, I can't think of any. There were so many. There was a, like a, a side and a half of A4 of well, stuff that John had just pulled out. Which actually in itself made us realise that that's not necessarily the best way to go around about titles, you know, because mm. it's sometimes it can present something that's brilliant. Like Tin is called Tin, not because it's anything to do with the content of the song, but it gives it this kind of, immediately puts you in a certain place, it's something small and precious and shiny. And that sort of seems to suit the music. But go, combing through the lyrics and just pulling out phrases as non sequiturs is maybe not that revealing for us. But Man Alive did actually come from that. Came from QWERTY, yeah. It came from QWERTY. And we, obviously it has more implication yeah. in the two words even within that song mm. or, or how they're usually used seem to so we liked it because it was sort of silly we toyed with the idea of putting an exclamation mark at the end of it which quite quickly <laughs> several, went Man away. Alive is such a great title that several times 
for other albums, I've been it's thinking, come up. what's a good, what's a good, and I've, and I've actually come across Man Alive again. Well, just naturally, through yeah. your own organic yeah, process. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we did that, man. Yeah. Yeah, I'm very proud of that title. I think it's, it's really good. good. Yeah. And, it's, and it's got a kind of cold documentary quality to it, which we liked as well. Mm-hmm. Man Alive. This is, this is Life on Earth in 2010. It was mm-hmm. very much what we were trying to get across. I think the way we made the record as well, the sort of polar extremes in the way we recorded the album because although we'd done a lot of demoing and a couple of sort of single sessions with David beforehand we basically made it either in this church in the countryside in Snowdonia in Wales a couple of hours drive from here or on this very sterile industrial estate Mm. um, on like the North Circular in London and the two the two extremes of vibe of sort of part of the album I can think. you hear that when you listen back can I don't you know if you can hear it but I definitely it, I think it suits it in retrospect we always enjoyed being at Bryn Derwin, which was the Welsh studio way more than we enjoyed going to this sort of leisure centre that, that I mean, had that, a recording that, studio that really. dichotomy is is really the biggest one you, you have exactly. I think in recording popular music and it's do you want it to sound real or do you want it to sound perfect mm. and it, everything is on the same sliding scale of those are the, those are your two ends, and where are you going to place the drums? Where are you going to place the vocal? Where are you going to place the bass? All those kind of things. You want it to sound absolutely pristine, straight out of Hollywood, or mm. do you want it to sound like a rock band, or you know, more earthy, or all these things? And Bryn Derwin was very far that way, and the other place was very far the other way. And something like Nash was on your side has got drums that sound like an astronaut recorded them, but the piano is quite warm and real. Mm. But then we would do things like cut up the the floor tom, da, 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 so it would yeah. sound really false. So there's lo- there's loads of ways they bled into each other. But that's still the conversations we're having, even probably later today. Yeah. You are going to have yeah. that conversation. Right. <laughs> yeah, we will about how how much to tune a vocal and things like that. I'd like you to pick a couple of moments from the album. Like I say, there can be favourite songs. It could be moments within songs. It can be just memories from the recording process that take you back to a certain point or time. Who'd like to go first? Well, I will talk about the trumpet part in Come Alive, Diana, which is a song we we sort of dropped and never picked up again because someone mentioned it on Twitter the other day and I started to think about it and just play it through my mind and it's it's great, that bass line when it comes in and the, the way they work three, again, three over four. We, yeah, that there's was a trumpet a, solo on it There's a well. trumpet solo. We always forget it's there because yeah, we never play the song and, we, and obviously we don't really listen to it very often. And yeah, I think that was a really good addition, basically, to have you know a proper brass player on there also we we did have another brass player on schooling which was alex's brother oh yeah but the night before he was coming down to record some tenor sax on schooling he got burgled and his sax got nicked (laughs) so he just brought a much smaller saxophone which is in a higher register and just just completely different sound but we just had to go with it yeah yeah. because it was like his brother and it's gone to the effort yeah and because it was still a sax and you know that that sort of perfectionism hadn't really crept it it happened happened that day or it wasn't going to happen yeah so we just recorded that yeah pitched it down a bit (laughs) i quite often think about like the second half of two Nero because we toured that song a little bit, but we didn't really have a way to play the ending, really, the whole end section, which was sort of its strength, because so much of the songs we'd, we'd worked and worked and worked, and we, they were just precision tooled. And that's a real moment where it's just really, really loose. No one's got any part writing, per se, mm. on it. It was very much Mike's sort of sensibility to just sort of, you know, it's very jazzy, basically. Yeah. Alex was really good at that as well. It was a really nice moment to... Uh, to think of it's just three chords you know you're just thinking about how to deploy 
what little you have at your disposal across really quite a long period of time and build up the the emotion with these very basic musical building blocks. And that was a real pleasure to be part of that. What were your expectations when you were releasing that album? And I don't want us to come across in the wrong way, but it's not the kind of album that's going to sell millions of copies and go platinum and go to number one. Mm -hmm. It's clearly an incredibly creative album. It's a very clever album. And it was rewarded in that way that it won or got nominated for a Mercury Music Prize, lost out to PJ Harvey, won Ivan Novello's, I think. Yeah, I think we were nominated for someone, mm. yeah. And brilliant industry reviews as well. Like the, the press absolutely loved it. But what was your expectations as a band when you unleashed this into the world? Oh, it's so hard to remember what we felt like, really. I think you're right, though. I don't think we expected it to be number one. But we, want, we were excited by the fact that we had some mainstream foothold, mm. that we were able to be part of that scene but on our own terms and get like radio play and be part of the lists that people do at the beginning and the end of every year, all that stuff. It was exciting to be hotly tipped, I suppose, but also to know that that wasn't going to infiltrate the music in any way. <laughs> so people were going to have to get on board or not. And I think the way that that record was received and the way it sold and the way it charted was just exactly right, really. Right. It's a cult record. I think it is kind of, not for me to say, but I think it is a classic in its, in its own way in that it's quite an uncompromising piece of music that means a lot to people. And that's, that's all you can ask for, really. Of course it's a classic record. Yes. It's a classic, all right, fine. All our records are classic, but that one <laughs> is the most. I don't think I was surprised by the lack of success or the success. I had just no expectations, I think. Yeah, that's why we... Every, it did seem it. like everywhere we turned, people were saying, this is good. You know, we had Zane Lowe pick up our single and go nuts about it, and we, had, we were on the BBC list, and all these things, and I was like, yeah, oh, well, of course. You know, of course. Of course that's happening. We're amazing. <laughs> and then I wasn't surprised to not be number one. You know, there, there is no expectation, and there isn't any... Because when you have that much belief in yourself, I think you don't, it doesn't really, you, it wouldn't have surprised me if we had been number one. You mm. know what I mean? I would be like, yeah, of course we're number one. You know, it's just, you, you just, you're kind of a, a weird person when you're that age, I think. <laughs> and you, you, your debut album, ask any band what they think on their debut album's day and they're going to say something insane probably. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> we never expected it, remotely expected it to be number one. We wanted to crack the top 20 and we did. So Yeah. 17. Yeah. Well, do you know what? I thoroughly enjoyed listening back to it after a fair well, a decade, probably since I'd listened back to it from start to finish, and it was great to rediscover it. And Jeremy Jonathan, brilliant to speak to you about it on the Exit Long Play. Before you go, I think you hinted about what you might be up to at the moment a second yeah. ago, but I assume. Well, yeah, we love uh, repitching vocals <laughs> on very old recordings. <laughs> yeah, we are making a record. Okay. I don't think that's a secret exactly. And uh, we're nearly now? finished, actually. We're sort of at the stage where we're arguing over mixes and track listing and um, titles and stuff, which is always the last sort of push, the last 5% or so. Or it's more than that, really. But, yeah, it's... uh, Taking shape. It's taking shape, yeah. But the fact that we've made seven albums, or, you know, there have been six more since the thing we were just talking to you about is feels quite extraordinary to me now in a short space of time as well that's, Relatively, that's a good yeah. hit rate yeah. in terms of yeah. releases You've got to churn them out now yeah. <laughs> two or three years of record it sounds like a luxury <laughs> yeah absolutely yeah well excited to hear it as and when it comes but yeah lovely to speak to you on the excess long player thank you you too Access Manchester Long Player, an iconic album in full with jim salverson access manchester
Absolutely love that, talking through Man Alive with everything, everything. I'll be honest with you, when I pitched doing this podcast slash radio show with the band, I wanted to do Ark, which is my favourite Everything Everything album, not least because it contains the line, enough genuflecting in a penitent way, which I just think is an awesome line to have in any song. But I'm glad we went for Man Alive because I'd not listened to it in ages and it was brilliant to delve back into it. Plenty more to come from the excess long player and plenty in the past as well. So make sure you're followed, make sure you're subscribed and there will be new episodes coming very soon. And make sure you've checked out the back catalogue because loads of classic albums being discussed. No doubt some of your favourites with some of your favourite artists. The Excess Manchester Long Player, an iconic album in full with Jim Salverson. Excess Manchester.